And today we're reading John chapter 1, verses 1 through uh, 14. And what we, many of us have probably read this passage a thousand times, but there's so much here in this passage that many of us just don't see because we don't understand the culture of the time. So with that in mind, I'm going to begin in verse 1. It says this, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, teacher, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born again if he is old? He cannot enter a second time in his mother's womb and be born, can he? Verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I say to you, you must be born again. For the wind blows where it wishes, and you have heard the sound of it. But do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered and said, Are you not the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. And I will stop there. Thank you guys for being here this morning. Well, good morning once again. If you have your, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to John chapter 3. At the heart of John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21, I see one central issue. It is the issue of religion. The lies of religion are real, they are everywhere, and they are eternally damning. The lies of religion are real, they are everywhere, and they are eternally damning. Today I hope to make a distinction between religion and truth, between religion and Christianity, because that is what I see in the heart of the passage today. Religion says that it is up to us, that it is up to you, that you can be good enough. That if you observe the five pillars of Islam, then the will of Allah will let you in. If you have a shada, a declaration of faith, if you have a daily salat, a prayer, towards Mecca, if you give at least 2.5% of your income, if you fast during Ramadan, and if you make a pilgrimage to Mecca, then Allah might let you in. Religion says that it is up to us, that we can be good enough. But religion also says that spirituality is a task to be performed. By their own admission, a Catholic website says that Catholics do not believe that faith alone saves us, for they do not believe that an unincarnate faith can save. Rather, we are called to be involved in our salvation as well. Religion says that it's up to us, that you can be good enough, that spirituality is a task to be performed. Religion says that salvation, that righteousness before God is an act of the will. If you think about it, all religions are trying to find a way to make it to God, but Christianity is that God found us, that God made a way to us. The road to heaven is not paved in deeds, but in blood. Can I say that again? The road to heaven is not paved in deeds, but in blood. Religion says, I can do it. Christianity and truth is that he did it. 
to religion, attaining a right relationship with God is a matter of will, of discipline, of heart, of sincerity. To Christianity, attaining a right standing before God has nothing to do with us. Can I say that again? Christianity truth is that salvation has nothing to do with us, has nothing to do with our sincerity, our will, our discipline, our heart, our deeds. Christianity is founded on love, and that love paid the cost for you and I to go to heaven on the road paved with blood. Religion is, I can do it, and Christianity says that he did it. And this distinction... This distinction between religion and Christianity is the heart of the problem in John chapter 3 because Nicodemus is sitting there. He comes to Jesus by night, which we'll talk about here in just a few minutes, and he is totally blinded, totally deceived by the religion that he has been raised in, that he has observed for all of his life. But the deception of religion is not just found in our culture, it's not just found in Nicodemus' life, but it's also found in the church and it's found in every Christian's life. Every Christian, to a degree, is deceived by religion to the true nature of the gospel. Some Christians are deceived to think that some prayer that we prayed ten years ago saves us. Treading on thin ice. (laughs) Or some of us secretly, deep down, believe, even though we would not confess it, even though we would not say it, some of us truly believe that we can be good enough. But what does the Bible say? The Bible says that we must be born again, spiritually renewed, transformed, redeemed. Some Christians are deceived to think that they know Christ, and because they know Christ, that they are saved. Can I just say it this way? I am terrified to get to heaven and to stand behind the pearly gates and seeing people that sat in my church for a number of years come to the pearly gates and our Savior say, I never knew you. I think a lot of people, when they enter into before heaven's gates, will realize that they only knew about Jesus, that they knew the information that Jesus died for their sins, that if they would have believed in him, that they would be saved, but they have never truly been born again. Some Christians are deceived to think that they are saved because someone else told them they were. (laughs) Many people sit around churches in America and around the world Deceived to think that they are Christians because some preacher told them they were. You know, preachers have a, this is me speaking, preachers have a bad habit to say that if you pray this prayer, that you walk the aisle, or the fact that you've gone to church for a number of years, that you are, you must be saved. Preachers also feel pressure to get people to fill out a little card to confirm that you're saved and to confirm that they are doing a good job. But the last time I checked, a card or walking down the aisle or even myself, none of those save anybody. Friends, we are not saved by knowledge. We are not saved by prayer. We are not saved by walking the aisle. We are saved not because of anything we can do, but because of what he has done. The road to heaven is paved in blood. This tension between Christianity and, and religiousness, this tension between Christ and religion, 
is the central tension in John chapter 3. So if you have your Bible, turn there. This is probably one of the most famous passages in all the Bible. It contains most likely, if not the most famous verse in all of the scripture, John 3.16. Can we just say it for one time, just for kicks? For God so loved thee, that he gave his one and only, that whosoever in him shall, sorry, awkwardly, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. We all know that, but there is so much here that we do not see because of the culture that we have never lived in. There's so much culture and, uh, that we must unpack to really understand the text here today. Because, believe it or not, Nicodemus actually understands to a degree what it means to be born again. For the longest time, I thought that concept of being born again was totally foreign to Nicodemus, but that is actually not the truth. But we really can't understand this text without a deep understanding of Jewish culture. So I'm just going to forewarn you, today is going to be deep, and it's going to be rich, and it's going to be talking about the culture, and some pieces of today's message are going to be totally TMI. Uh, That means too much information, but it is absolutely necessary to understand the scripture together. But first, I want you to notice the cultural context of John chapter 3. I want you to notice where we are when we enter into this passage. Notice verse 1 of chapter 3. It says, Now, that is a temporal marker, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, For no one could do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Verses 1 and 2 answer really one question. It answers the question, who is this Nicodemus guy? Who is Nick? He is four things in verses 1 and 2. Number one, he is a man of the Pharisees. That's what it says. And I'm just going to say the importance of this phrase, that he is a man of the Pharisees, cannot be understated. The fact that Nicodemus is a Pharisee explains basically everything about his misconceptions, about his lostness, about his ignorance, about his understanding of what it means to be born again. If I could say it this way, the first phrase, a man of the Pharisees, is the key to unlocking the entire meaning of this passage. But first, what are the Pharisees? If Nicodemus is a Pharisee, then we must ask the question, who are they? What was their... Origin, what was their problem? They had many of them, but what was their problem and what was their purpose? Now, many of us probably know about the Pharisees. We have been told a great many different things. I imagine our our knowledge about the Pharisees is kind of like a 15-year-old driver who just got their driver's permit. They know just enough to be dangerous, right? (laughs) <laughs> I got a couple nods in the audience. Okay, I, I, one day I will experience that as a 15, uh, have a fifteen year old driver, and I'll be in the car, and I will be terrified, just like my parents were. Okay, all right. But what do we know about the Pharisees off the top of our head? We know that what Jesus despised them. They are the only group in all of the New Testament that Jesus publicly attacked. They were called hypocrites. They were called a brood of vipers. They were called whitewashed tombs, clean on the outside, but bones on the inside. We know from the scripture that they would shame men, that they would heap weights of spirituality on men's shoulders that no one could bear. They would show off their prayers on street corners. They loved the places of honor. They conspired to kill the Messiah. 
Now, some of these probably ring true off the top of your head, but I'm just going to go a little bit deeper into the culture. Most preachers wouldn't go this deep, but it just helps us really understand and interpret John chapter 3 correctly. The actual name Pharisees means separate ones. They are separate in their attempts to remain pure. Their origin is between Malachi and Matthew. If you've ever noticed that there is some kind of time lapse between the end of Malachi and the beginning of Matthew, there is a 400-year period of silence between the Old and New Testament. What scholars say, or really what we know, is that the Pharisees began somewhere in the 400 years, probably in the time of the Maccabees, They consisted of mostly middle-class businessmen who represented the orthodox view of Christianity. But really, it's just to answer the second question. What's their problem? Right? I mean, we all have lots of problems. Can I get a name into that one? Thank you. Let's just say it. We all have lots of problems. Thank you. That's why we need Jesus. Amen? All right. So we know the Pharisees have lots of problems, but really, why did Jesus despise them so much? It is because they focused on the external and not the internal. They decided to try to make up rule after rule after rule after rule after rule to justify themselves before God instead of just realizing the truth that they had no chance of justifying themselves before a perfect God and that they needed a Savior just like everybody else. So the problem is is that they are focused on external performance and not internal transformation. What is their purpose? The Pharisees' purpose is basically to force the nation of Israel to be religious, to be right with God, to abide by so many rules that they must be good with God. So when we see the phrase that Nicodemus is a man of the Pharisees, that Nicodemus comes into Jesus in the middle of the night with this mindset that he can be good enough that he is born of Abraham, that he must be okay, that he is important, and that justification, meaning an innocent standing before God, justification before God can be achieved by means of external behavior. I just wish they would have read the scripture (laughs) more. Notice the second cultural detail. It says there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, And that he was a ruler of the Jews. Who was Nicodemus? Number two, he was a ruler of the Jews. Now this phrase is very important and it tells me that Nicodemus is a very important man in the nation of Israel. That he is not just one of 6,000 other Pharisees, but he is actually one of 71 most important people in the nation. Although the Pharisees numbered in nearly 6,000 of them, they had... Okay, if you had 6,000 Pharisees, they had a ruling body above them called the Sanhedrin. You might recognize that term, the Sanhedrin, which was members, 71 members. So the Sanhedrin is made up of 71 different members, some of the priests, chief priests, and they are essentially the supreme court over the nation of Israel. They rule. They have jurisdiction over civil and criminal matters. So in other words, this. Let me just put it in American perspective for us all. Nicodemus is a U.S. senator. Right? That put that in perspective. That Nicodemus is one of the most important men in his entire nation. 
But what's interesting about the Pharisees is that they, in the Sanhedrin, excuse me, that they did execute or have jurisdiction over civil and criminal matters, but they did not have the ability to execute anyone under capital charges. Let me say that again. The Pharisees and the Sanhedrin had no ability to kill anyone under capital charges. Now, why is that important? Think about what happens in John chapter 19. If the Pharisees could have killed Jesus, they would have. That's why they needed a man named Pontius Pilate, a Roman governor. That is why they convinced him to kill Jesus by crucifixion, because they did not have the power to do so. Who is Nicodemus? He is a Pharisee. He is part of the Sanhedrin. And number three, he is scared. Notice verse 2. It says this. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. This man came to Jesus by night. Now, some people feel like this little phrase is totally insignificant, and some people think it's wildly significant. I, I tend toward the former. I believe that this phrase, he came by night to Jesus, is very important because it tells me three things. That number one, it was night. Even though it feels like night outside, it's not. Okay, anyways. Number two, it tells me, it keeps the theme of John, but then number three, it tells me that he is scared that he cares about the opinions of others, it reveals to me that Nicodemus himself is fearful and uncertain. It really tells me that he's fearful of the implications of being associated with Jesus. But then notice with me what he says in verse 2. It says, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, and for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. What does this tell me? That Nicodemus is a Pharisee, but he's also what? The fact that he can tell that Jesus, a Jew that he doesn't know is that important at the time, that the man named Jesus is from God. What does that tell you about Nicodemus? That he is spiritually aware. He understands that there is something different about this Jesus guy. Nicodemus looks at his signs. It does not associate Jesus with the devil. He associates Jesus with being from God. He is aware. And then notice what Nicodemus calls Jesus. He calls him rabbi, which is a sign of importance. So all that is totally TMI, and I'm about to give you even more to really understand the concept of what it means to be born again. Because the central conflict is still yet to come. The conflict in John chapter 3 is found, is introduced in verse 3 and 4. Notice it with me. Jesus answered and said, And truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born again, can he? Who is Nicodemus? He is number five. He is also deceived. He is blinded by religion. What, is this, what does Jesus say in verse 3? He says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Let me just put Nicodemus' world in perspective. Nicodemus has been raised his entire life to think that he would inherit the kingdom of God because he is a child of Abraham. 
Because he has his ancestors as Abraham, because he had a piece of skin cut as a sign of belonging to the Abrahamic covenant, that he is guaranteed a spot in the kingdom of God. In other words, this, that he is guaranteed because of his blood that he can enter into heaven. But he has been deceived his entire life. If I were Jesus, I would not be nearly as patient as he was with Nicodemus in the first century. Because what I would say to Nicodemus, as his confusion was unfolded before me, when he says, born again, you must enter the kingdom of God. If I was, if I was Jesus, I would not be that patient. What I would say is, have you not read what it says in Genesis chapter 15? If you were here while we are going through the book of Romans, what did it say? What did, Genesis 15, 6 says this, And Abraham believed in God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. The Jews for 2,000 years have been convinced that because their father was Abraham, because they've been circumcised, that they would be saved, that they would inherit the kingdom of God. But that is so not true, because Genesis 15, verse 6, it shows that Abraham believed, but circumcision did not come until Genesis chapter 17. That they have been deceived to think that they, by man-made rules and by acts of the flesh, that they would be justified before God and nothing could be further from the truth. Nicodemus is deceived. The road to heaven is not paved in deed but in blood. For all those listening online, I hope you're tuning in. For those here today, I'm just going to put a time out on this for just a second there are as i was just wrestling with this text this week and as i've just been mulling it over i just came to realize that there are nicodemuses in every pew in america there are people that that fill up churches all around the world that are deceived by the promises of religion by the promises that if they come forward or if they just pray a little prayer, or if they show up enough to church and they're a good enough person, that somehow, some way, that they will inherit the kingdom of God, that they will inherit heaven. But nothing could be further from the truth. The road to heaven is not paved in deed, but in blood. Who is Nicodemus? He's a Pharisee. He is part of the Sanhedrin. He is scared. He is important. He is spiritually aware. He is deceived. But then notice the last characteristic that we will talk about today in verse 4. This is where we will really dive into the understanding of what it means to be born again. Notice verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, You know, Jesus, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Now, I have no idea how Nicodemus actually really said that, but I interpret it exactly that way. Who is Nicodemus? He is number six. He is absolutely spiritually dead. He is on the outside. He is a whitewashed tomb. He is clean. He is justified. He is a good-looking guy with a bunch of robes. And he is well-respected. He, is, he takes the places of importance at tables. But on the inside, he is but bones in death. He cannot be more spiritually dead. And the justification, the understanding for that is his response in verse 4. Now, if I'm transparent for the longest time, I interpreted Nicodemus' response in verse 4 out to be out of uh, total, complete ignorance. In other words, this, that Nicodemus had no idea what Jesus was talking about when he said that he needed to be born again. But actually... 
what we cannot see because we are Americans and we live in a totally different culture and time is that Nicodemus actually had a very good understanding of what it actually means to be born again. And they under, the, it is revealed in verse 3 and 4 when Nicodemus says this, verse 4, Nicodemus said, How can a man be born when he is old? That last little phrase, when he is old, tells me that he understands what Jesus is actually talking about. But many of us uh, have no idea what it means to be born again. Many of us have no idea what the term means to be born again. So, now, in our English translations, to be born again is very vague. So, I went digging a little bit. Now, if you know my personality, believe it or not, I am very uh, meticulous, plan-oriented. If you don't believe me, then you should just look at my sermon notes, okay? This thing is ridiculous. It's like a book up here, okay? Okay. But I'm really meticulous, but, and so usually on Friday, I'm done. Like, my sermons are finished, they're completed, and I'm like ready to just kind of put up my feet and just kind of let it all soak in. But then last night, I'm sitting there, and it's, it's 10.30 at night, okay, and I'm, a, you know, I'm about to go to bed, and I'm just bothered with a question. What does it mean to be born again? Like, what is the actual understanding of that actual term? I know what Nicodemus, how he thinks he is born again, and how Jesus knows that we are born again, but what does that actually mean, to be born again? The word again here, in the original language, is a Greek word, and it's onothen. What it means, it doesn't really mean born again, it actually means a little bit different. The use onothen is used, the word again is used 13 times in the New Testament, and 11 of those times are outside of John chapter 3. The term onothen, or again, means kind of from above. That you must be born from above. Now, I don't know about you, but that makes a lot more sense to me than being born again. That we must be spiritually born from above. That not... We're not supposed to do something externally to put on a good face, that we don't justify ourselves before God, but that there must be some kind of spiritual renewal, that there must be some kind of change, that the Lord must take my spirit and make me alive and new. But the problem with Nicodemus is that he understands what that means. He understands that he must be born from above, that he must be spiritually renewed, but the problem is, is that Nicodemus thinks that happens by means of physical deeds. Because in this culture, what we don't know and what we don't see is that Nicodemus understands to be born again happens in six main ways, in six different experiences. In Nicodemus' understanding, to be born from above happens not by faith and not by God, but by act. And it happens in six main ways. Number one, it happens when a Gentile converts to Judaism. Number two, it happens when a king is crowned and he is considered to be born again. Number three, it happens when a Jewish boy completes his bar mitzvah. Number four, it happens when a Jewish man is married. How do we know that Nicodemus is married? It's because he's part of the Sanhedrin. Number five, when a Jewish man is ordained as a teacher. and He is a rabbi. And then number six... To be born again in Jewish culture by physical means, to be born from above, happens, number six, when a rabbi, when a teacher becomes head of a rabbinic school. 
And we know he is because of Jesus' response in John chapter 3, verse 10. Okay, I know if I lost you, I'm going to pull you back in. Whoop, come back with me. Think about Nicodemus. As he meets Jesus, the first words out of Jesus' mouth, he says that you must be born again to see the kingdom of God. What is Nicodemus's first thought? Well, first, I am inheriting the kingdom of God because I am a child of Abraham. And then he says that you must be born again. He says it again in verse 4. And then Nicodemus says, well, I've had that too because I have had four out of the six necessary experiences, four out of six total experiences that it means to be born again, that physically Nicodemus understands that he must be born again, but Jesus' path to spiritual renewal is not an act of the will, it's not by being good enough, it's not by observing bar mitzvahs and by being a teacher and by being part of the Sanhedrin. Jesus understands that it means to be born from above by faith through the blood of Christ and that when, we, when that happens, the Lord spiritually renews our hearts and makes us new. Now, when, Jesus, when Nicodemus is sitting there in the middle of the night, I can just imagine him, if I could put on his shoes real quick. Imagine Nicodemus' shock when he hears verse 3 and 4. Now, with all that TMI background, now listen to Jesus' response in verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is confused and said, how can a man be born again? I already, when he is old, I've already done all I can do. I'm old, I've already done it all. He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Now, I'm not Jewish, and I didn't live in the first century, obviously, okay? Um, so allow me to put Nicodemus' shock in perspective. Imagine that you're 50 years old and you're, you grew up and had a wonderful childhood. And growing up, you constantly heard from your parents stories of your birth and early childhood. And you've heard your entire life, your whole life, from other people, from strangers, that your nose looks like your dad's and you have your mom's eyes. Does anybody else get that growing up? Okay. All right. And they just looked at me like, what happened? Where, what are you? Um, anyways, I just look totally different than my sisters. Okay. Um, there's a reason. I Anyways, uh, so uh, I have a beard. Okay, but I mean, so imagine, so you're sitting there, and imagine growing up, and you've been told your whole life that you had a wonderful childhood, and your your face just looks like your mom's, and your eyes look like your dad's, and then towards the end of your dad's life, he is sitting in his rocking chair, and he leans forward to you, and he tells you that you were actually adopted. Now, I, I hope that hasn't happened to any of you, but imagine if that did. How would you feel? You would feel totally and completely shocked and stunned. In my opinion, that's how I interpret Nicodemus to be in verses 3 and 4. Nicodemus has been told his whole life that he's guaranteed an inheritance in the kingdom of God because his father was Abraham and because he is circumcised. He has been told that he is going to be, that he is born again because he's had a bar mitzvah, because he's had all these other things. And then Jesus says to him, none of that matters. None of it matters. That you cannot earn, which he will talk about here in a few minutes and we will probably discuss here in future weeks, 
They, none of that matters. That what, who your father was and what acts and deeds you have done does not matter because we cannot earn our salvation. Can I get an amen to that one? The road to heaven is not paved in deed but in blood. And I would imagine if I were Nicodemus in John chapter 3 verses 1 through 4, I would feel shocked, stunned, betrayed, misled, spiritually dead, and clueless. But I wanted to ask a simple question in verses 1 through 4 is this. What is Jesus really trying to do? Jesus is more than trying to give him a theological thumping and a theological lesson. But what is really Jesus trying to do? He's using the first four verses of John chapter 3 to convince Nicodemus that he is truly lost. That he truly needs Jesus. That he needs to be spiritually born again and renewed. Because why would Nicodemus believe in Jesus if he didn't need him? Why would Nicodemus follow Jesus and be unpopular amongst his Pharisees, which we will see in John chapter 7? Why would Nicodemus become unpopular if he didn't need him? Why would Nicodemus sacrifice all, deny himself, take up his cross and follow him if there was another way to heaven? What I see that Jesus is doing in John chapter 3, verse 1 through 4, is that he is peeling back the onion. He's peeling back the lies that Nicodemus has been taught, that Nicodemus has been brainwashed, that have deceived him to the truth, that his religion, Judaism, tells him that he can be good enough, that he's going to inherit the kingdom of God, and if that doesn't work, then he has four safety lines of being born again. My point today is that religion is death, and deception, and Christ is life and salvation. If you have your notes, my point today is that Christ is life and salvation, and religion is death and deception. I think, as I mentioned in the very beginning, that many of us, actually to a degree all of us, are Nicodemus. We've all been blinded by religion to some degree. We are each blinded by religion that here, that here we know Jesus to be our Savior. We know that He died and He came. But friends, what you know doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. And when you believe in Him, then you gain heaven. If you have never been spiritually born again, then guess what is going to happen? You're on the road to hell. That's just reality. I'm not here to preach fire and brimstone, but that's just the truth. Some of us have been deceived by religion because we know the truth and have never been spiritually born from above. We have never been born again. But some of us are on the opposite side of the coin. Some of us are really are good to go, that we know that we are going to be saved and that we believe in Him. But the opposite side of the coin, that we have been brainwashed by this idea that I'm just going to call for the sake of simplicity, hyper-grace, that I can do what I want. That because I am saved, because God forgives me, and God, God loves me, then therefore God doesn't care about purity, doesn't care about my sin and my acts, but nothing can be further from the truth. But other of us are dead. We may be spiritually alive, but the real disease has been inoculated. That we have almost had a vaccine to the power and awesomeness of Christianity and walking with the Lord. As some of you know, in the beginning of my years, I grew up at a Christian school, grew up in a Christian family, and this was the disease that I struggled with. That Christianity was just something that I was, it was something that I did, it was something that I observed on Sundays. 
But Christianity shouldn't be boring. It shouldn't be just something I do. It should be all-encompassing. It should be something that I give my life to. That I must deny myself. I must take up my cross. I must follow him to whatever destiny he has for me. I think we in America as Christians, we have it really easy. We have it really good. That, to be honest, we don't even have to tell our coworkers that we're a Christian. We can just kind of put that in a closet and just kind of, just kind of stuff it away and not let anybody know. But when we do that, we're taking away the blessing of really knowing our Lord and seeing others follow Him. My question for you is twofold. Question number one in your application section is what deceives you? What deceives you to the true nature of Christianity? Fear that you can't be good enough, careless thoughts to purity or a stale, lifeless faith. My question number two is this, is what lie of religion do you believe? We all as Christians have lies that we believe. Something is blinding you to the truth that even as a Christian, the enemy is whispering in your ear that, you know, they really, that person over there, God, your friend, they really don't like you. They actually hate you. Satan whispers in your ear that God really does not love you. He whispers in our ears, and the whispers that he gives are often sound like the insecurities that we carry. Even as Christians, our flesh blinds us to truth, that sin is okay. <laughs> as Christians, we are blind to that truth, especially in our culture today, that sin is okay. That God will forgive you, that God loves you, that everything is fine, but nothing can be further from the truth. The urges of our flesh often are our unmet needs. And even as a Christian, the world blinds us to the truth that we think we need to keep up with the Joneses or that we need to have some kind of significance in this world instead of finding our significance and in our value in what God has said about us. And as Christians, we can be deceived. And even as Christians, we can be convinced that we are saved because some preacher told you that if you repeated some incantation that were two sentences long, that magically on the other end, that you could be saved. <laughs> Sorry, that's a soapbox of mine, as you could probably tell. Some preacher probably said to you, that to Christians, that you show up every Sunday, you must be a Christian. Some preacher... Maybe I've said that you walk the aisle, therefore you are saved. And I had a preacher one time that said, if you pray this prayer and you mean it, that's a little bit better. But, friends, the road to heaven is not paved in deed, but in blood. We cannot save ourselves. That is the first tenet of salvation, of understanding what it means to be born from above. That by faith in Jesus Christ, and that faith is not just something that we know, but it's something that completely changes our lives. That we become spiritually new, we become spiritually alive, that we are born from above. 
that we are born of spirit and of flesh. If you have never been born again, if you have never known what that, what that means, if you have never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then what are you waiting on? What are you waiting for? My hope today is twofold. That as a consequence of this sermon, that if you are a true believer in Jesus Christ, that you would examine your life and you would see the areas that religion has deceived you. Maybe you're creeping into legalism. Maybe you're creeping into hyper-grace. Maybe you're creeping into a stale spiritual life. My hope is that if you're a true believer, if you have been born again, that you would understand what deceives you. And that number two is that if you are a Christian, if you have not truly been born again, that you would go home and you would look at yourself in the mirror and you would ask that question, am I truly born again? And that you would trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. What does it say in John 3.16 again? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. I hope that you would believe in him and that you would follow him with every part of your being. Bow with me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. I thank you for John chapter 3. And the, uh, there's just so much here, Lord. Um, there's so much culture that we do not understand. There's so many misgivings of the sermons we have heard and people's interpretations. Uh, Lord... My goal this morning is more than information transfer, but really uh, that you, not me, but that you would work through your spirit and through your word to transform our lives. Lord, I am honored uh, to be here. I'm honored to be pastor of this church and consider it a tremendous privilege and responsibility to do so. Lord, I just um, I thank you for my family here. That although they may not be family according to blood, we are family spiritually. And Lord, we are the body of Christ. And I pray that we would uh, work together, that we would love each other, that we would forgive one another, that we would be patient with one another. Lord, just grant us love for you and a love for people. And Lord, I just pray that we would uh, go home and we would see our lives that we would walk away different, that we would not walk out of this room deceived as to the truth. Lord, it's an honor to be here, and I thank you that we can still gather even in the midst of this mad, crazy time of the world. Um, I'm happy to be here physically in person. I thank you to those watching online that cannot be here. I pray for them as well. I thank you for them. I thank you for Calvary's faithfulness to this church. Their faithfulness is seen in so many ways. I just thank you for today. In Jesus' name, amen.